Welcome to The Full English, a podcast about English food and identity. Because who are the English? Where do we come from? Why do we eat the things that we do? And what do our eating habits say about who we are? My name is Lewis Bassett. I'm a cook and a researcher, and I'm fascinated by food. In this series, we'll be digging into the meanings of England and Englishness by looking at what we eat, from mutton and the birth of capitalism to cellular agriculture and the proteins of the future. In this first episode, we'll begin by looking at what the English breakfast can tell us about how food in England has changed, and we'll also be finding answers for why England has such a bad reputation when it comes to food. Welcome then to episode one of The Full English. But why England? Why not the United Kingdom or Great Britain? Why not European food? Or how about food in Nottingham, where I was born, or food in London, where I live now? Well, I have a feeling that England, specifically England, is confused about who it is. It's been a turbulent time in politics, and I think events like Brexit, particularly in its consequences for Northern Ireland and the rise of nationalist parties in Scotland and Wales, have shaken up our understandings of national belonging. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. I mean, in many ways, the, the place we live in is a country with no name. I'm David Edgerton. I'm a historian of Britain and of science and technology at King's College London. I mean, if you look at war memorials, it says things like, gave their lives for king and country, without specifying what that country is. And very occasionally, you see a war memorial that specifies England. But I've never, ever seen a war memorial that says somebody died for the United Kingdom. I've never seen one that said that the memorialised died for Great Britain. According to David, it's only after the Second World War that many people saw themselves as belonging to Britain rather than the empire. But that relatively brief period of British nationalism has been unravelling. So we have the rise of Scottish nationalism, of, of Welsh uh, nationalism, uh, a new dispensation for Northern Ireland in, in, uh, in good time. So a whole set of assumptions about what it was to be this thing called Britain come apart. I think uh, it is important to recognise that we now have a, a new discussion, I think, about England and Englishness, uh, which, which arises, I think, uh, because of the, the limited uh, self-government that, that now exists in Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland. So that raises some very important questions about what what England is, what its place is in the United Kingdom, and what, what its democratic structures uh, ought to be. But there are other reasons to look at English food as well. And that became clear to me when I went on the streets of London with the artist and producer, Forrest DLG, who makes the music for this show. We wanted to know from people what they thought about English food. Excuse me, can I ask you a quick question? I'm making a podcast about English food. Do you have any views on it? Yeah, but I haven't got time now. I'm really sorry. But you do like it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is. Can we ask you a quick question about food? Yes, have you got any? We're making a podcast about English food. Do you have, okay. any, do you have any views on English food? English food? Why? What? It's bland, most of it. I prefer a bit more spice. Indian food, Jamaican food, that's where all the flavours are. Yeah. It's okay. Well, there's a reason... There's no English food stall here at the market, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's just not as um, 
It's a diverse palette as other cuisines. Would you say it's bland? Yes, that's what I'm alluding to. <laughs> <laughs> it's bland and boring. It's not bland, follow with bland, follow with bland. Yeah. Occasionally you have like a nice fish and chips, but meat and two veg doesn't quite cut it. I hate fish and chips, I have to say. Like, I just don't like it. It's just not for me. Fruits, veggies, they're not as tasty. Shit. <laughs> that's why we're queuing for love instead yeah, of eating said. something else. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not too bad. The English fry up will often go down nicely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I guess, typically the best English food is all the food that's been borrowed from other cultures. So, I mean, isn't the national dish a chicken tikka masala? Which actually has nothing to do with Asian culture. It's an invention to make Asian culture the food more accessible to a British palate, which didn't handle the spice. But even things like pizza, fish and chips, like... Yeah. All of these things are borrowed, so traditional English food? I don't even know what that might be. Uh, maybe it's like the home of fusion. It seems that on the one hand, a lot of people think our food is rubbish, and on the other, some people born in England aren't always confident that we even have a distinctive national cuisine. Back at my flat, I'm making a traditional English breakfast for my partner, Eve, and three of her friends. My partner and our guests are from Italy, and I want to see what they think of what is probably England's most widely known national dish. What's that? What's that? What is this? Open it and, and you'll see. It's liver. No, it's some intestine. Bollocks. <laughs> no, it's not bollocks. <laughs> no, it's liver or intestine. Mizza. I don't know no, the English term. It's a trippa. Spleen. No. Is it long? It's not long. No. What is it? Is it? Kidney. Kidney. I'm serving an English breakfast, Victorian style. That means kedari, a mixture of rice and fish flavoured with curry powder, as well as Bombay toast, which is bread fried in butter with anchovies and cayenne, and a Victorian favourite, deviled kidneys. Wow! Wow! Who's going to try this? Only Zuli. I'm going to try it. Gaston, you're going to try a kidney? Not at all. <laughs> I, I mean, if I was closer to Bianca, I would like sniff it from hers. <laughs> you, you sniff it. Can I? No, I mean. You can sniff it. Can I sniff yeah. it? Sniff, sniff is okay. Mm, it's really good. What? what? Mm, yeah. Is it? Yeah. You're lying. No, I don't What does it taste like? Tip mean, mushroom. Tipo when the. Let me there. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah, can you get me a, a play uh, a, a bit? This one? But oh, Jesus, fucking yes. <laughs> no. I need time. It's good. No. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You should have that. There's a big one there, though. So that went down surprisingly well. I think that for today it was quite mm. a big one. And it shows whether you like it or not. England certainly has a strong food tradition. The fact that we have an explicitly national meal, an English breakfast, makes that obvious. To get a sound check, can I? Can, can you sound? Oh yeah, today? yeah. Black coffee with uh, Jordan skinny syrup coconut macaroon. I mean, I I am a sort of a black coffee, no sweet person, but. Um, 
with this book, two things have hit me. One is the Jordan skinny syrups, thank God, otherwise it might have been the real thing. And the other is chocolate, for which there is no substitute. It, it, it's all bad for you. It all ends up on the hips and <laughs> the jowls. You know, what can I do? This is Carrie O'Connor, a researcher based at the University College London, who wrote a book on the English breakfast. When it burst upon the world, I suppose, was in uh, Victoria, the beginning of Victoria's reign, when there was a huge, a huge promotion of national identity, a huge um, building up of the image of England, subsuming the other parts. And um, so that's when um, you have the promotion of England and the emergence of this meal coming together and therefore the English breakfast. Mm. Maybe I can ask you, what is so distinct about the English breakfast compared to other countries? It is the only breakfast. I mean, there may be imitations now, but the distinctive thing about it is um, it was a cooked breakfast, um, a meal in itself, whereas in most other places, let's say the whole of Europe, it's very much a scratch meal. You know, you have your coffee and then you have croissant, toast, or perhaps nothing at first. Then you get perhaps 11 o'clock and you get the pastries and things. But, um, and, and quite a lot of places are like that. You know, it, it, it isn't something that you get out of bed and sit down to a big cooked breakfast. And in Scandinavia, you do get more. But that's very much a buffet and you, you get a lot of pickled things and you get a lot of cold, you know, meats, sausages, hard-boiled eggs. Not this great big cooked thing like we have here. So that's what made it distinctive. I mean, there wasn't anything like it. And if you want proof that we can understand a nation by what it eats, the invention of the English breakfast is it. At the time of Queen Victoria... Um, it was felt important to, to emphasize Englishness in everything. Because, you see, the great thing about um, Victorian life is that suddenly lots and lots and lots of people had lots and lots and lots of money or, you know, various amounts. Um, and all over Europe, um, this was a period of revolution and change. Um, and, you know... Governments were rising and falling, and um, there was a great deal of concern. So what happened in this country is it was um, people became wealthy, but it was tamed in the sense that they were told, all right, now, we should all try and be civilized and to emulate the upper classes. And so everyone became very refined and very genteel, each in your own way. A new rising middle class, who had profited from the growth of industry in Victorian England, sought the stability and the status of the older landowning upper classes. Members of the newer money group did this through their dress codes, through their speech, through their etiquette manuals, through being able to distinguish a soup spoon from an asparagus fork. But no less, these new middle classes in England sought to project their status by eating the same kinds of breakfast that the older, upper classes ate in their country manners. And to some extent, towards the end of Queen Victoria's reign, even factory workers followed suit. And where workers in cities didn't have access to fresh ingredients, cheaper, processed foods, from tin baked beans to margarine instead of butter, increasingly filled the gap, 
giving rise to the fry-up style English breakfast that we know today. But the important thing to note, as Carrie explains, is that it was the desire to emulate the upper classes with whatever means were available that helped to popularize the English breakfast. Um, it was it was a sort of gentility at one or two or three removes, but it was very important because it was something about the English that, you know, this idea of bettering yourself is what, you know, what we should aim for. Carrie, as you can probably tell, isn't from England. She's from Hawaii. But, she says, not being born in England is one of the reasons she's so obsessed with English breakfasts. You can only talk about the English breakfast if you're not English. It's famous throughout the world, and particularly, you know, the fringes of the old empire. And you you think of it as the most distinctively English thing. And you have a vision of the, um, the sideboard covered with silver dishes and being in a country house and, you know, sort of working your way along the, the row and picking it up. And you've got kippers, you've got mushrooms, you've got eggs done several ways, several kinds of sausages, bacon, and you make your own combination. And that is the English breakfast with masses of toast, jam, and so on. And, and this is what you think there is. So you get here and you can't find it. And I remember my first encounter was, um, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a fry up in a chippy. And, um, there was, uh, chips and then there was, um, fried egg and then there was the beans and this. And I thought, my God, <laughs> where is the real thing? And, uh, and I went for a very long hunt for it. And that's how the book came about. But it, it was a, it was a hunt that took a long time. And did you find it? Yes, I did find it. Um, you, I mean, you do, but you do have to pay for it. Mm. See, that's the thing is it is not an everyday kind of thing. You know, if someone says to me, right now I want an English breakfast, what I would do if it were open is I'd head straight for the Wolsey. Because mm-hmm. that's as close as you can get for a restaurant. You know, of course, it's not on the sideboard, but you have a choice. And then you have wonderful dishes there that... Um, we're part of the old sideboard, which is like kedgeri. Wonderful. But is a food tradition like the Victorian breakfast still a tradition if few people eat it today? The fact that one of the few places you can get an old school English breakfast is a five-star hotel tells me it's not really a widespread tradition in England. That also explains why my guests were so surprised by the food that I made them. Like Cowrie, they had only come across the breakfast served in Greasy Spoon cafes with beans, chips and fried tomatoes. Maybe that, and not the wonders of a Victorian sideboard, are the real traditions of England today. And whether you like these more modern kinds of cooked breakfast, perhaps it's these far more everyday foods that England is to be judged upon. And so maybe it's some of these foods that have given England's cuisine a bad reputation. Despite the proliferation in restaurants and the vast improvement in restaurant food over the last 40 years, I'm still slightly sceptical about us having a food culture. And I I rather suspect after 10 years of Brexit, um, we might be back to where we started. This is the chef Roly Lee. His view on the current state of English food is deeply pessimistic. There isn't honestly really the infrastructure that places like France and Italy have in terms of production. If you look at the Fens, which is the most fertile soil in Europe, 
We produce frozen peas, sugar beet, and cannabis oil. If you go to Brittany and see what they produce there, it's rather different. And, you know, yeah, we've got a great cheese industry, but the fact is, uh, when there was the Listeria crisis in, I think, 91, almost every single cheese milk maker in Britain started to pasteurize their milk, sort of kill their cheese. Anybody who didn't got into terrible trouble. You know, do you think the French started pasteurizing their milk? Like, fuck, they did. You know, I mean, and I don't know. I just, I just, as I say, you know, I mean, a real proper food culture comes from the field. It doesn't, you know, come out of a chef's head. Well, we'll see. But, uh, you know, without Italian and French produce coming into London every week, yeah, we'll all be eating sea buckthorn and lingonberries. Clearly, England's culinary reputation has changed over time. To explore this further, I've come to the Quality Chop House in London to meet Ben Rogers, who wrote a book about food in 18th century England. I can have a part, just a partridge, please. So I have a middle white chop, and can we get some coffee Like Cowrie's research on the Victorian breakfast, Ben's book, focused on the century before the Victorians, shows that England once had a very proud food tradition, one that even foreign observers were impressed by. So here is the French traveller Henri Misson, writing in 1698. It is common practice, even among people of good substance, to have a huge piece of roast beef on Sundays, of which they stuff till they can swallow no more and eat the rest cold without any victuals the other six days of the week. Another so 25 years later, the Swiss traveller, uh, Monsieur Morat, uh, wrote, the pleasures of the table in this happy nation may be put in the same rank as the ordinary. Everyone is accustomed to good eating. They consist chiefly of a variety of puddings, golden pippins, which are an excellent kind of apple, delicious green oysters and roast beef, which is the favorite dish, as well as at the king's table as at the tradesman's. It is common to see one of these pieces weigh from 20 to 30 pounds. And this, it might be said, is the emblem of the prosperity and the plenty of the English. Food, and above all beef, was for many people in 18th century England a way of displaying your patriotism. The French was the arch national enemy you know, associated with Catholicism you know, and a sort of a, a military rival throughout, throughout this period. Uh, and you know, it was a more hierarchical society, it was a very strong tradition of sort of court cooking which was, you know, on, on, the, on, the, on the English-British view, you know, ridiculously effeminate, over-refined, dishonest, and, and as I said, English, the cult of roast beef was a defined in opposition to that. So in the 18th century, these beefsteak clubs were formed in England with the purpose of combating uh, French, I think the implication effeminate food with a lot of sauces uh, as opposed to good old hearty John Bull, uh, the food that made Britain uh, great. Yeah. Uh, and you get the same kind of thing today where um, politicians feel they have to eat mushy peas in the north of England, that famous uh, gap of the Labour Party politician who was served mushy peas somewhere in the north and thought it was guacamole. That was Paul Friedman. He's a historian at Yale University. We'll hear more from him later. The politician was Peter Mandelson, 
a close ally of Tony Blair. It's also, it, it wasn't just defined against the French, it was also defined against what was, what was perceived to be a sort of very cosmopolitan upper class, sort of Frenchified upper class, sort of, you know, the, the metropolitan, you know, remainers of their day, if you like, who dominated uh, government un, in, in, in the Georgian period and viewed France in particular as a sort of, you know, model of sophistication and looked look to France for inspiration when it came to, to fashion, to art and architecture and to food and to cooking. Um, so if you were you know, against the against Walpole and against the, the aristocracy of the day, you were in favour of roast beef and, and that sort of that, that sort of cooking. And this culinary patriotism found expression not just in the kitchens, but in in art, you know, in the art of Hogarth above all, in literature, in you know and it sort of found an expression in these sort of beefsteak clubs which I guess were sort of forerunner of the sort of gentlemen's clubs of, of today, um, where people sort of gathered, you know, good English patriots, patriots gathered to uh, eat roast beef and, and, and have fun and moan about uh, the French and the over-Frenchified aristocracy. Hogarth, by the way, was a famous nationalist painter and satirist of his day, and beefsteak clubs were not too dissimilar to the quality chop house where Ben and I are sat now. But that's not the only parallel between the past and the present that Ben points out. I'm struck by the really strong similarities between the politics and the sort of particular sort of cultural politics of late 17th century and 18th century Britain and today's divisions over Brexit and the metropolitan you know, elite. And yeah, the way the way in which English roast beefing, bulldog owning, jumble patriots in the 18th century sort of characterized their enemies, both internal and, in this case, European. This is, is very, very similar to the way that Brexiteers characterize you know, Remainers. And, I, and, I'm, and no doubt Remainers look down on, on the Brexiteers a bit like the sort of, you know, the, the, the court uh, looked down on, on, on roast beefing uh, jumbles. In fact, it's hard to ignore how John Bull, the buffoonish, rotund caricature of roast beef eating Old England that was often depicted in cartoons in the 18th century, shares a few characteristics with Boris but Johnson. As we, as we said at our, at our bilateral, when it comes to, to chilled meat, the, you know, the verst is behind us, as, as I think. Uh... But while we can find continuities with England's past, we should look closely at the changes as well. Does industrialization, as we mentioned before, account for a decline in the quality of English food. Paul Friedman, the professor at Yale that you heard from earlier, certainly thinks so. Part of the answer is early industrialization, certainly in the case of England, that you get a rapid breaking of rural traditions and the creation of big cities with um, a population that doesn't have access to producing its own food. So that the food of Britain in the 17th century was not regarded with contempt by foreigners. But by the late 19th century, when a vast majority of people were living in the cities uh, and uh, were poor and subsisting on tea, bread bought from a store, jam, and, uh, you know, maybe meat drippings, uh, mm. the food traditions were quite poor. However... Paul says that industrialization isn't the only thing that explains England's bad reputation when it comes to food. 
you have some of the same thing in the United States, but also both places, the upper class culture either regarded France as its example. Mm -hmm. So the best chefs in Britain and the United States were French chefs. The fancy restaurants were French restaurants. In New York in in the 1960s, the top-rated three-star restaurants in the first New York Times guide, with only one exception, were all French, and you'd get the same kind of rankings for restaurants in London at the same at that time. Um, And then finally, the cultures of the two places shared a contempt for people who fuss about food, who make food uh, a kind of item like music or art that is worth talking about and fussing about. So there's, uh, to this day, a kind of tendency simply to say, food is functional or food is whatever I like and cuisine is kind of uh, an affectation. In France, on the other hand, cuisine has, since the 17th century, been an expression not only of taste, but of national skill and um, the wedding of pleasure to prestige. Uh, And so from the 17th century until I would say around the 1980s, French food was the great standard of international haute cuisine. Mm. And only in the past 40 years has this diversified so that other countries such as Italy or Denmark have become you know, leaders in world gastronomy. Paul says that England has a comparable food culture to the U.S., both of which contrast starkly with places like Italy. So the love of processed food comes from a love of efficiency and health and being modern. Uh, but processed food actually doesn't taste as good as uh, seasonal and local food. So what you do, the ice cream may not be very good, but it comes in 30 different flavors. <laughs> so variety is a distraction from quality. My epiphany on this was in Italy. So I was in Bologna and uh, was taken to a restaurant and uh, we had to order tortellini. That was one of their specialties. That's a specialty of Bologna. They were the best tortellini I've ever had and quite clearly. And my host said in other parts of Italy, they make tortellini sometimes with cheese or with spinach. And I said, and a very American remark without intending it to be, <laughs> oh, would you ever just get tired of meat tortellini and, and just have spinach tortellini for a change? And, and the guy looked at me like I was an idiot. He said, no, we're in Bologna. In Bologna, we eat meat tortellini. <laughs> we never find that in the, in the United States. We have, I mean, my supermarket has 10 kinds of tortellini. I could yeah. go there right now and get, you know, a three cheese tortellini, a pancetta tortellini, portobello mushroom tortellini, spinach tortellini. But um, it's not very good. I mean, it's not as good as these lovingly made, standardized in terms of ingredients, bolognese tortellini. Well, uh, the United Kingdom doesn't really have a peasantry. This is David Edgerton again. It has, in fact, a tiny rural workforce. Uh, Already in 1900, we're talking about less than 10%. 10%, And that's radically different from France or Germany uh, or Norway or Sweden or indeed any uh, part of uh, part of part of Europe, so so the, the agricultural population is essentially being eliminated by by 1900, um, and um, 
food has become much more industrialized than than elsewhere. Uh, and food is 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 brought to the country by giant enterprises, um, uh, and and goes through all sorts of industrial uh, processes. Uh, um, uh, and why not also to mention canning? Uh, I mean, British people eat enormous amounts of canned food from a very early date. Uh, and as many commentators uh, kind of pointed out, uh, poorer people in in in, in cities. Uh, at enormous quantities of, as it were, unfresh food, uh, which would not have been the case for a, a a French or German peasant, for example, they might have had restricted diets, but they'd be they wouldn't be diets that came out of a can or or out of a fridge. Uh, so there was a profound effect, I think, on 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 the British uh, on the British diet. So industry both industrially processed foods and industrial poverty has had a big impact on England's food habits. But, again, that's not the whole story. There's another element, which is that the United Kingdom is free trading. And that's, that's really important and quite, quite distinctive. It means that half the food, roughly, that is consumed within the United Kingdom comes from, from overseas, I mean, from Europe and from the other side of the, of, of the world. And that's true of no large uh, uh, economy at that at that time. I mean, that gives you a, a very different sense of what the of what the nation is. There's no expectation that you should you should uh, um, eat British uh, uh, British flour in, uh, as British bread. Uh, there's no expectation that uh, that you that you eat the roast beef of old England. Uh, you, you eat the the roast beef of of Argentina and uh, and, and 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 Uruguay and so on. So it's not just industry that's defined British and English food over the past two centuries. On the one hand is our attitudes towards food, and on the other is the consequences of empire. England and Britain's ability to organise the world in its own image in order to reap the benefits of trade and sometimes direct extraction has meant it never needed to invest in an agricultural workforce. Because why have a peasantry at home if you can outsource one to the Americas, India and Africa? But doesn't this raise a question about the Englishness of our food? Surely, if you're taking wheat from Canada, tea from China and spices from India, how can you then call what you eat and drink English or British? See, that, that's the difference. If you have got an empire, it's your food. It becomes yours. That's the whole thing about conquest. You know, it becomes yours. And so um, back then, I mean, of course it was foreign, but it was our foreign. Right. And because kedgeree was really a colonial dish, I mean, there's nothing quite like it um, in the original. It was taking elements of, of um, you know, traditional cuisine and mixing it together in a way that would be palatable to the colonials. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's another way that mm -hmm. it it's ours. In fact, and as contradictory as it might sound, English and British nationalism went hand in hand with the expansion of the empire during the 19th century, as Carrie explains. There was this huge rise of interest in um, the sort of mythic past and... Um, one of the heroic figures was Alfred, you know, who had done so much to, um, you know, bring the foundations of England together. 
Cowrie tells me that a story that was popularised at the height of England's empire was that of King Alfred and the stovecakes. The story goes that in the 8th century, before England even existed, Alfred, the Anglo-Saxon king of Wessex, had been fighting Vikings and had sought refuge in a peasant woman's home. Not knowing he was king, the woman asked Alfred to watch some stovecakes. But the great king's mind wandered, and Alfred let the cakes burn. When the woman found out, she gave Alfred a telling off, and the king, in spite of being a king, accepted the punishment. The tale of the cakes was a kind of a, a test of character. Here he was, the king, driven out in a peasant woman's house, having burned up all her food, and yet he apologised. He, he let her berate him. And then from then he went on to um, succeed. It just feels like such a contradiction to be at the peak of empire and at the same time constructing a domestic, like quite like specifically domestic origin story. But you have to, you're constructing the homeland to Mm. which, you know, the motherland, the fatherland, to, to whom the new subject people may now feel a family relationship. I suppose anthropologically, the point is you say, um, we are ancient, we, we right. spring from the soil, we are, we are pure, we are English, we are us, come and join us or come and let us rule over you, as the case may be. But what you want to do is you, you strengthen your own identity yeah. at the point at which you begin to dominate others. There's no point in being sort of fluffy and saying, oh, well, we're all sorts of people. We're really cosmopolitan. That will not do. Um, not at that early stage. You want, you want a very, very strong image. Empire and industry are two inescapable features of England's past that continue to animate who the English are today, evident in what we eat. Already, we find that defining who and what England is has a lot to do with the country's relationships with places and people outside its national borders. The English breakfast itself is fundamentally similar to an Irish or a Scottish breakfast. At the same time, a full English served in Cornwall is often distinct from one served in Yorkshire. That's because nations share features as well as contrasts with other countries externally, while they're not as homogenous internally as nationalist myths tend to imagine. If England is a country in crisis today, having left the EU, and existing within a frayed union with Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, then understanding what England has been will be the first step in asking those who live here what they want it to be now and in the future. For the rest of this series, we'll be digging a little deeper into the themes we've just covered, starting in episode 2 with sheep farming and the birth of capitalism in England. In episode 3, we'll be looking more at England's place within the history of slavery and the British Empire by examining our taste for sugar and tea. And from there, we'll hear more about how modern agriculture has changed the way we eat and how it continues to do so in the context of climate change. We'll chart the English invention of what is often referred to as modern European cuisine. And finally, to end season one, we'll examine who has the authority to make a national cuisine and whether immigration changes how we might view Englishness. That's it for episode one. The show was made by me, Lewis Bassett. 
You can follow The Full English on Twitter and Instagram at fullengpod or just search for The Full English. Music and sound engineering for the show was provided by the talented Forrest DLG. You can find him on Twitter and Insta at Forrest DLG. Huge thanks to all our guests. There are more details about them and their work in the show notes. And if you want to support the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash full English. For less than the cost of a fry up, you can get access to tons of extra content, including full interviews and recipes related to the show. Relevant to this episode, you'll get a recipe for deviled kidneys, Bombay toast and stove cakes. You'll also be supporting us making future episodes of this podcast. So please, please, please do sign up. That's patreon.com forward slash full English. Thank you so much for listening.